Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skin dyed red and badger skin and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I that I may dwell among them. Today, we are continuing our most recent Tabernacle in the Wilderness series. If you have been with us as a regular over the past almost 10 years now, you know that the Tabernacle is one of our favorite subjects, and so we return to it often. And each time that we do, we take a slightly different approach. When we used to teach, quote, live, when we would teach in front of people in a space, sometimes we taught at libraries, sometimes we taught at hotel rooms. And, and when we did that, when we were teaching on the tabernacle in those days, we would put slides up and it would be just like a university classroom. This is a little bit of a different forum. So we're teaching it in a little different way and we're focusing on a few different things. And really that's natural because there's so much to talk about on this topic. I mean, God himself spent a lot of time talking about it. Remember, we pointed out that the Bible contains more than 50 chapters of details on the tabernacle in the wilderness, actually spread out between both the Old and the New Testament. And in comparison, we like to call your attention to the fact that creation is only given about two chapters. Now, there's always someone in the crowd that I'm sure is thinking, well, why do we spend so much time studying a building that no longer exists, that no one alive has ever seen, and worst of all comes from the Old Testament. Some people think that. I'm sure you've heard similar exclamations from half-hearted Christians in the past, haven't you? They, they'll tell you that it's pointless for Christians to study the Old Testament. I mean, they'll say, after all, our book, our, in air quotes, quotes, book is the New Testament. Well, well-taught Christians, certainly you, our regular listeners, know that that's simply a ridiculous opinion. You see, the Old Testament demonstrates God's limitless mercy for his children and his limitless power over people in history. 
When we study the Old Testament, that is the impression we get. That God has said he's going to do something, something, and then we see that he's done it. It's the record of what he's done, the record of what he's doing, and what he will yet do. You see, there are things in the Old Testament that have not come true yet. So to call it the Old Testament is almost a misnomer. Because there are things in the Old Testament that have not occurred yet. So how can they be old if they're yet future? God's Word is so complete, you cannot separate it out. It tells us, especially the Old Testament, and that will surprise you that I'm going to say this, the Old Testament especially tells us of God's redemptive plan. That's why we honor the Old Testament so much around here. Now, our goal today is to describe in some detail the objects found in the tabernacle. As a reminder, those of you that were with us last week, in part one of our series, we discussed the pattern, what the Hebrew called the tabneth. Now, in this next part, we are going to talk about the objects or the contents of the tabernacle. Now, I'm going to caution you. You have to sharpen your focus because the material we covered last week was so in-depth, it doesn't get any easier this week. So, let's begin. So, you know that the tabernacle in the wilderness is really a mobile building complex. It wasn't a permanent building. God designed it to be mobile. He designed it to be quickly set up and torn down as the people journeyed from place to place through the desert. God's presence in the form of a cloud or a pillar of fire, as we spoke of last week, would move God's presence was above the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk about that later in the lesson. God's presence was found above the Ark of the Covenant, and it rose in the form of a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, depending on whether it was day or night. And the people knew that was God's presence, and God's presence stayed there above the tabernacle until it was time to move. When the cloud moved or the fire moved, then the people knew it was time to pack up the tabernacle and follow the cloud or the pillar. And God designed the tabernacle to accommodate that. He made it possible that it could be torn down quickly and set up quickly. There are lots of people that have estimated how much time it took to build up and to tear down. I don't think that's necessarily important for us to go over. All you need to know is that it was perfectly designed in every way that from the very first moment of its use to the very last one, it, nothing was added, removed, or otherwise modified to make it serve the purpose God had intended it to serve as a mobile place for him and his presence. By God's wisdom, it was built with such durable materials and construction techniques that it actually lasted over 500 years. 
And that includes, by the way, the 40 years where it was set up and torn down numerous times while being subjected to the brutal extremes of the desert. After that 40 years, obviously, the people no longer moved around, neither did the tabernacle. It, was, it lasted for you know, more than 450 years after that. All of the many construction details were laid out by God to make it fit that pattern, that tabneth. And that pattern was so important, not just for the practical reasons I've already shared, like easy to build up and easy to tear down and easy to move. That wasn't the only reason why he designed it that way. There's so many reasons why. That's why he demanded strict compliance with his instructions. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. That was a command. God commanded that. In fact, in some cases, deviation from God's directives with respect to the details of the tabernacle resulted in swift judgment, sometimes death. God was telling a story, and the only way that story was going to be communicated properly was if the people did precisely as he commanded. If, if an artist decided that they were going to paint a sunset, and the artist had a little assistant working with him or her and said, listen, assistant, will you mix up some really beautiful orange paint for me? I'm going to get ready to paint the sun now. And the assistant came back with blue paint. And, and the artist says, what, what's the, what are you doing? My pattern is to paint a sun. Well, I think the sun will look prettier in blue. So I decided to bring blue. Well, that person wouldn't be the assistant for much longer. The artist has a story to tell. The story is about the sunset. He can't paint the sunset with blue paint. You catching my analogy? God had a story to tell. And he wanted it to, tell, to be told precisely as he instructed. That's important for you to know. Now, as we said last week, the tabernacle was really a fenced-in rectangular area. And all of the various tribes of Israel pitched their tents surrounding the complex. And God precisely instructed them how to do that and where to do that. Each tribe was given a location specifically for that tribe by God himself. Here's how they were arrayed according to Scripture. On the south side of the rectangular complex were the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. On the west side were the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. On the north side you would find the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And finally, on the east side were the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. 
Now, a very important point about the placement of the tribes. There was only one entrance to the tabernacle complex, and it was on the east side. Well, on the east side, as you heard me just say, was the tribe of Judah. God said the tribe of Judah will encamp on the east side. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. In fact, the book of Revelation refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The only way to enter into the tabernacle was on the east side. The only entrance to the tabernacle was on the east side. On the east side was the tribe of Judah. The only way, listen to me closely, very closely. The only way to enter into the tabernacle was to go through the tribe of Judah. Do you understand that statement? Do you understand the spiritual lesson? Listen, there are no accidents in God's word. Nothing is simply incidental. And nowhere is that more true than in the tabneth, the pattern of the tabernacle. There was only one way to enter into God's presence, that's to say where God was dwelling, and that one way went through the tribe from which Jesus was born. One entrance, one way in. Listen to what Jesus says. John 10.1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Jesus said, The door, not a door. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold. The definite article is what that's called. The, the word the, is a definite article. A, indefinite. If Jesus had said a door, that would mean there's several doors. The door means there's one, one entrance to the sheepfold. And then, so we don't get confused, Jesus continues by identifying that one door. Listen to this. He said, I am the door. By me, by me if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Let's go back to John 10, 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The one entrance, one entrance to the tabernacle was through the tribe of Judah. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. If you went in any other way, you were considered a criminal. If you went in some other way than that one entrance, then you were gaining access illegally. And I'm using the word illegal purposely. Illegal means not in accordance with the law. Is that clear? I've had many discussions 
with people that don't want to accept the truth that it is by Jesus alone that we are saved. The world, even the Christian world, doesn't want you to believe that. It's too exacting. It takes too much of my freedom away. I can't be nice to people. I I once had a young man who was a Christian ask me, well, how do the Muslims get in? I said, through Christ. He lost his mind on me. Listen, Muslims are not excluded from heaven as long as they become a Christian. There's only one entrance. There's not two. There's not three. If you're a Buddhist and you want to get into heaven, there's not a door for you. But that doesn't mean the door is not available to you. The door is available to you. You just have to go through Christ, meaning you have to do it the way Christ said to do it. There is no way around it. If you go in any other way, the Bible says you're a thief and a robber. A thief is someone that steals sort of clandestinely, clandestinely. A robber is one who does it by violence, according to the the way the Bible defines those things. You're a thief and a robber. If you attempt to enter into the presence of God as represented by the tabernacle, if you do it any other way, you're a thief and a robber. And that was Jesus's, the lowly Jesus, the humble Jesus, the loving Jesus says, if you do it any other way, if you enter in any other way, you're a thief and a robber. One entrance. We'll get more, we'll get more information on that entrance a little later. Now, if you were to approach the tabernacle from any side, you would be struck by the beauty of the fence that surrounds the complex. And it's not a fence made out of wood or metal like we think of them today. It's actually an enclosure that's made entirely of fine twined white linen. Now in the Bible, fine linen represents righteousness. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Revelation 19.8. And of course, the righteousness of the saints was given to us. The righteousness of the saints that's mentioned in Revelation 19.8, as I just read it, is righteousness that's given to us. Imputed is the legal term. Imputation, I've always said, was a theological term. Well, it's also a legal term. Imputation means it has been given, it's been granted, it's been placed upon, imputed by Christ. The righteousness of the saints was given by Christ. So therefore, the white linen, the fine twine linen that surrounds the tabernacle, that represents Christ. Now, that white linen fence was 1,400 square cubits in length and surrounded the entire 100 cubit lengths, cubits long, 50 cubits wide outer court. That is the measurement as laid out in Scripture. Now, we don't use 
qubits today, so we have to convert to kind of get a better understanding of the scale. Now, there is some debate about how long a qubit actually is. Just as a side note, originally a qubit was described as the length of the forearm. In fact, the, e the Egyptian hieroglyph glyph for the qubit was the symbol of a forearm. Well, today we can basically think of a qubit as around a foot and a half. Now, if we use that conversion, we can determine that the perimeter was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. That is the conversion of those cubit units laid out in Scripture, 150 feet long, 75, 75 feet wide. Now, this white linen fence was held up by 60 pillars total on all four sides, 20 each on the north and the south, and then 10 each on the east and the west. As you can tell, that's a rectangle. 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 These pillars were most likely made of acacia wood. We'll talk more about acacia wood in a moment. So each of those 60 pillars was set in a brass socket and held in place by cords. And these cords were fastened to brass pegs in the ground. So let me go through that again. Each pillar was set in a brass socket. And each of those pillars was held in place by a cord that was fastened to brass pegs in the ground. Now, as with everything else in the tabernacle, the use of the specific metals is an important part of the story. In the Bible... Brass represents judgment. Now, that will come up again and again in this discussion. Approaching the beautiful building, based on what we see of the materials, the worshiper would become immediately aware, based on this well-known symbolism of the materials, of his desperate, of our desperate state of separation from the glory and righteousness of God as a result of judgment. Because we see the brass. And we see, in contrast, the white linen fence. Remember the white linen fence? The white linen fence represent righteousness. The brass represents judgment. We can see that on the outside, outside of the perimeter of the tabernacle, the presence of God, there's only judgment. That's what the brass sockets and brass pegs are telling us. The white linen fence speaks of God's goodness, of his righteousness. That's the contrast we see as we approach. So looking up away from those brass sockets as we lift up our heads, our heads away from the brass sockets and pegs, that are in contact with the earth, we would see silver hanging above because each pillar was capped with silver. And a silver chain or bar, the Bible calls it a fillet, was fastened and ran from post top to post top. So there was a silver chain that was attached to silver caps that go all the way around the tabernacle. And by the way, I'm, gonna, I'm going to tell you all of this is scriptural. 
None of this is made up. So, as I said, this bar or chain made of silver traveled along the top of the silver pillar, the silver caps of the pillars. So that if you followed that chain or bar, that silver chain or bar, it led to the one entrance. No matter where you started, you followed that chain around because each pillar was linked together with this silver chain. It all would go to the single entrance to the tabernacle. Well, in the Bible, silver speaks of redemption. For example, the book of Exodus instructs that each male of the tribe was required annually to give a silver half-shekel each year as redemption money. That was the purpose of the silver half-shekel. It was redemption money for the soul. Silver represented redemption culturally to the Israelites. They knew that silver represented redemption. You see, silver can't be used in its natural state. You can't just grab silver out of the ground and use it for a spoon. To be useful, silver must be purified. Silver must go through a process of refinement. Well, isn't that what redemption is? That's how silver gets associated with redemption. The process of refining impure silver speaks of redemption. The silver chain running in all directions to the one entrance of the tabernacle clearly speaks of redemption. It's symbolic of redemption, the purification, if you will, of the sinner as brought by that one great refinement process that occurred on Calvary's hill. That's what it, why it all leads to the one entrance. That's Christ. Come on, John, you, you don't believe this stuff, do you? Come on. Aren't you just interjecting meaning here? Okay, stay with me. There's a lot more information that we have to listen, we have to share. We've already shared a lot. I just want to make sure that we're all together. The silver bar, chain, or fillet goes the entire length and breadth of the tabernacle. No matter where you start, you end up at the entrance. Jesus' redemption leads you to the entrance of fellowship with God. Got that? So, at this point, we're approaching the tabernacle. We know that we must go through the tribe of Judah. And we've looked at the perimeter fence and we've seen it in all its beauty and we understand its symbolism. Now, as we get nearer, we see where we are to enter. By the way, there were no bouncers at the entrance to the tabernacle. Forgive me if it sounds like I'm being disrespectful. There is no guard at the door of the tabernacle. Nobody checking ID. Nobody there for you to fill out a qualification form. No qualification necessary to enter the tabernacle. 
No matter what tribe you hailed from, no matter what line of work you were in, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, priest, or simple worshiper, all could approach. But there was one catch. That catch was you must all use the same entrance. The entrance is open to all, but you must only go to that one entrance. No other way is allowed. The tabernacle, the building designed by God, has only one entrance requirement. You may come as you are, but you can only enter at one place. There's only one entrance to God's presence. I know that I'm beating this to death. I know that. So did God. There can be no doubt in your mind that there's one entrance to the tabernacle, one door. And I'm going to prove to you that that door is Christ. On the east side of the tabernacle, as we said, is the solitary entrance. But it's no ordinary door. Certainly, it's not a door like we think of doors. It's actually a curtain. Like that that perimeter fence we spoke of a moment ago, this curtain serving as a door was actually made of fine twine linen. But unlike that perimeter fence, this linen had color. Now, I want you to understand that fine twine linen underneath that color, we'll get to the colors in a second, represents righteousness. At the core of it is righteousness. It was a colorful curtain. It was colored blue, purple, red, sometimes called scarlet, and white. These colors also tell us a story. Now, I think, I think this is going to blow your mind. Now, there were four colors, right? Blue, purple, red, and white. Let me ask you a seemingly unrelated question. How many Gospels are there? You don't have to go to church very much to know that. There are four, right? Ever wonder why we have four Gospels? No, I know that every once in a while, someone will uncover some document that the discoverer claims is another Gospel. And each time that happens, the claims end up being refuted. Well, perhaps the answer as to why there are only four Gospels is present here at this four-color entrance to the tabernacle. Listen to this. The color blue represents heaven. The subject of the Gospel of John is Jesus, the heavenly one, the divine son. There is also the color purple on that curtain. Purple, you know, represents royalty. Well, the Gospel of Matthew is centered on the kingship of Jesus. There's red on that curtain, as we said earlier. The red or scarlet represents sacrifice, obviously, because blood is red. Well, the Gospel of Mark tells about the divine Savior whose blood, whose red blood, was shed as a sacrifice for our redemption. And then there's the color white. It, of course, as we've said, 
speaks of pure righteousness. Is there any other that's righteous but Jesus? Well, the Gospel of Luke centers on the righteousness of Christ. Did you follow all that? The four colors of the entrance to the tabernacle speak only of Christ. Each of these colors refers to certain attributes, certain aspects of Jesus. And each of those was stressed or emphasized in each of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually given God's seal of approval as the only true Gospels by the presence of the four symbolic colors. He insisted be present at the one true entrance to the tabernacle. Putting all of those things together, there can be no other answer. That door represents Christ. That door represents Christ, and Christ is the entrance to God's presence. And the four Gospels were given to us to corroborate what the door to the presence of God stated thousands of years before. If that doesn't amaze you, don't worry, I have more. Now, as we cross through the entrance, as we cross through the entrance, as we enter in through that curtain that represents Christ, Christ allowing us to go through into the presence of God, we are now inside the tabernacle complex, standing in what is called the outer court. And as we continue westward, we come to the brazen or brass altar. The brazen altar is where the various offerings were. A lot of this will sound like a review from last week, but we're going into more detail this week. So the brazen altar, as we mentioned last week, was where the various offerings were sacrificed to God. It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place where blood flowed. It was a smelly, bloody, hot place to be. Now, this altar was made out of acacia wood overlaid with brass. We've mentioned the acacia wood a few times in this series. It's called shittim wood in the Bible. Acacia wood is particularly useful as a building material because it's strong and sturdy. This strong and sturdiness speaks of Christ. This virtually indestructible, imperishable wood talks of his perfect humanity and the incorruptible nature of his body. That's what shittim wood is. It's hard, sturdy, almost in invincible wood. And that's the wood that was used to build the altar. Acts 2.27, because thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thy su thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's acacia wood. But that, Acts 2.27, is speaking of Christ. Now, the tree that produces the wood for the altar, the acacia wood, grew very sparsely 
in the desert where the children of Israel called home for 40 years. It's also said that that tree wasn't a particularly pretty tree. Let's read out of Isaiah for a moment. 53.2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Acacia wood grew in the desert, but not very often. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor, comely, nor comeliness. It's ugly. The shittim wood, the acacia tree, is not very pretty. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This passage, Isaiah 53, 2, is foretelling the arrival of the Messiah. But at the same time, it's the perfect picture of shittim wood. Tender plant, growing out of the dry ground, no form nor comeliness, and it's no beauty that we should desire it. Incidental? All right. God designed his word to be an undeniable testimony. You can put your finger on something in the Bible and put your finger on it somewhere else in the Bible because God's saying the same thing. This is a story of his son. The more diligently we study, the more we can see that God has been telling the very same story since the beginning of time. So, the altar is made out of acacia wood. The acacia wood speaks of Christ. We also just mentioned that overlaid over the acacia wood was brass. And you remember that brass in the Bible represents judgment. It was on this brass altar, this place of judgment, that the people would make their offerings, among other things, to cover their sins. The point of these offerings, the point of these sacrifices, was that the judgment due to the offerer fell on the offering. The person would bring a substitute offering. They were a sinner. They knew it. They wanted to get right with God, so they brought a substitute. And they laid it on this altar that represents Christ. The death that was due the offerer because of their sin was transferred to the offering. Something else took the punishment for the one making the effort to offer. The one that went to the brazen altar was allowed to transfer their guilt to the offering. I mean, there's hardly another word I could tell you. You know the symbology. You know that represents Christ in every form. He, Jesus, laid himself upon the brass altar of God's judgment as our sacrifice, and he received what we should have received. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's represented by the brazen altar? It's also said that the altar, the brazen altar, the place where the people would bring their sacrifices right inside the entrance to the tabernacle. 
Once they passed through that curtain and brought their sacrifices, they could see that that altar, we are told, was of sufficient size to handle any sacrifice. There was not a sacrifice that was brought to be offered that could not be handled by the altar. It was big enough by design to handle anything you could bring to it. The altar wouldn't break in the performance of its duty. Christ is big enough to handle anything that burdens you, anything that stands in your way of communing with God. Bring your sacrifice to the altar. Bring your life. Make it a living sacrifice to Christ. Bring it to Him. He can take it no matter what. Just this week, someone near and dear to me expressed, that they're not worthy of Christ. Of course you're not, but he can handle it. But you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know. Christ knew it before you did it. And he provided, God provided enough strength and durability to handle whatever you can bring. The ultimate sacrifice handler. Bring it. By design, God wants you to bring yourself. At the brazen altar, a fire was constantly burning. By the way, this is important for you to, very important for you to know. The fire that was at the brazen altar was not started by human hands. That fire was set by God, Leviticus 9.24. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Listen to me. It was the fire that consumed the sacrifice. It was the fire that did the work of cleansing and purifying. It was the fire that did what was needed. And that fire came from God. And there came a fire out from before the Lord. The instrument of judgment, the fire, was not man made. It was God made. Listen closely to me, especially my Catholic friends. No man can give you absolution. No man can declare your sins forgiven because that power comes from God alone. You got that? The fire on the altar... The fire, the instrument of purification, according to Leviticus, came out from before the Lord. The Lord saves, and no one else. Another important point about that fire. Once God lit it, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. Levit Leviticus 6.13 
the fire that God provided. He instructed that it will never go out. God made sure that the altar was always ready and always prepared for whenever a penitent sinner wanted to make a sacrifice. You know, you, you can't surprise Jesus. He never answers a prayer with, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. You never have to wake him up. You never have to make an appointment. You never have to check in to see if he's available. Christ, like the brazen altar, is ever ready to clear your way for a closer walk with him. And listen, that's why the altar was at the entrance to the tabernacle. It's the blood, the blood of Christ that serves as our entryway into communion with God. It is where our walk begins. It is at the altar where the new life begins. Now, I, I want to stay there, but we have to keep moving. And that's the point, isn't it? I mean, we all want to stay near the story of how we get, got saved. We like to witness about our past and the point that we became saved. So many people will tell you on January 3rd, 1934 is the day I got saved. And they'll tell you that over and over and over. It is an important date. Yes, I agree. But we can't stay there. We aren't finished yet. Listen, our salvation isn't for us only. It's for God as well. We may think we're saved for ourselves, but we're also saved for Him. Our salvation is the first step in our preparation for our work for Him. Don't linger there. Too many of my fundamentalist evangelical Christians want you to stay at that altar. Because it makes them look good. Keep moving. That's the story of the tabernacle. At the very end of the tabernacle complex was where God's presence was. That's where he was found. The Shekinah glory, as it's called. Remember I told you it was the pillar or the fire hanging over the Ark of the Covenant? That's at the end of the tabernacle complex. There is a distance between that altar where the sacrifice is made, where the life is given. There's a distance between that place and where God's presence is. The Shekinah glory. Shekinah coming from the Hebrew word that means to settle, inhabit, or dwell. There's still a good bit of distance between the brazen altar where you enter into your relationship with God and your ultimate destination, which is full fellowship with Him. That distance represents the life of the believer. Your salvation is only the beginning of your journey. Too many Christians think that once they're saved, they've reached the end of their responsibility toward God. They're going to sit in the heavenly bus station, waiting for the train, the bus to come pick them up to take them to heaven. Well, the tabernacle has a different story for you. The tabernacle lays out for you that there's work to be done. As we travel up toward that Holy of Holies from the brazen altar, 
the next thing we encounter is the laver. Once again, I want to emphasize to you, as I've done in so many things, that every detail we are given about this object has meaning. Even where the object is placed, that's important. God had a very specific place that he wanted the laver to be, and that was right after the altar. Remember, God is telling a story, and the characters in this story, made up of people and things, have to be just right. Exodus 30, Exodus 30, verses 17 and 18. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt, this is the instruction, therefore it's important. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. God said, place that laver right next to the altar. Place it in between the altar and the tabernacle of the congregation. We'll get to that in a minute. The very placement of the altar, I mean, sorry, the very placement of the laver tells us that there is a next step in our spiritual journey. There's the altar and then there's the laver. The laver is the next step. Once we've received our atonement for our sins at the altar, and before we get to our ultimate destination, we must first encounter the laver. As you can see from verse 18 of Exodus, this item was in essence a large brass basin or bowl filled with water, and it had a practical purpose. There was a reason, a practical reason for the laver being there. You see, each day before the priests and the high priests could actually attend to their duties in the tabernacle, and there was lots to do, but before they could begin their duties, they had to first stop at the laver to wash their hands and their feet, and they did that every day. Before they performed their duty for God, they had to wash their hands and their feet. Exodus 30, 19, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat, meaning the laver. Verse 20, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offerings made unto fire by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And that shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. This was a very serious requirement. Disobeying this commandment meant death. God was serious. Well, what does this have to do with me? Well, the laver, we are told, was made from the highly polished brass mirrors the women of Israel brought with them from their captivity in Egypt. They took all of these brass mirrors and melted them down and shaped them into a bowl. These were This was highly polished brass, and they made a bowl out of it by God's instruction. And by the way, 
those mirrors were given voluntarily. In fact, all of the materials used in the construction of the tabernacle were provided by the congregation. That was God's plan. Remember, we read in the beginning. Let's read it again. Exodus 25, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Listen to this part. Of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skin dyed red and badger skin and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God kicked off his building project by calling for an offering. A voluntary free will offering, but not only of the materials, but of the labor. The labor involved in the construction of the tabernacle. See, You see, the materials are listed in verses 3 through 7. We won't go through it again. And the labor is in verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary. Listen, God is not going to do this alone. He could, but he's not. He could have gathered all these materials. He made them. They're his. Everything belongs to him. He's God. He doesn't need anything from us. It's his plan that we're involved. It's his plan to get the children of Israel involved in this tabernacle building project. God wants us to be full participants in the building up of his kingdom on earth. Our giving and our efforts are requested. He's calling on you to be a giver and a worker. Now, viewed properly, you should see that as a privilege. We have this immeasurable honor to be included by God as a willing, full participant in the redemption of the earth. God has called us to participate in it. Do you understand what that means? Can you grasp the gravity of that? You've been recruited into the arm. See, this is why there are those that love this ministry that tell me, John, you got to teach more about giving. you got to get these people to give. Listen, if you don't get it, if you don't see the value of something that God is doing, there's something wrong with you. And I don't think any more teaching on my part is going to help you. Will I continue to teach on giving? Of course. But Exodus 25 discourages me from that, to be honest. Because I want you to do it willingly. I want you to see the value of this. I want you to see that God wants at least this part of his ministry is important to you. 
I don't want to have to try to convince you of that. You should already know. If you're open to the power and teaching of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing else I can say to you that's going to give you to give. Am I wrong in thinking that? Those that love this ministry and try to get me to teach more about giving say, yes, you should continue to teach. It doesn't matter whether you think they should know this or not. Continue to give on giving or teach on giving. Maybe I'll do that. But I want this. I want you to understand. Listen to this. Exodus 36, 5. And they spake unto Moses, they being the people that were building the tabernacle, those in charge, the construction engineers. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. They said, Listen, the people are, they're really, the stuff is starting to stack up. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. That's what I want. That's what I, as your pastor, want. I want to proclaim, guys, you got to stop giving, it's too much. The people, yes, the Israelites, the ones we accuse of not getting it, half the time, they responded with such great joy to God's call for an offering to be a part, their offerings to be a part of this building project. They had to be stopped by proclamation. That's love. That's love for God. That's what he is to you. Your cup runneth over because he's an abundant giver. Look around you in nature. We're told that when fish lay eggs, for example, there's so many eggs that most of them get eaten before they're fertilized. God's nature is abundance. If you had God's nature in you, you'd be an abundant giver. So far, I see no evidence of that. When God's people really get behind his call to be involved in something he finds important, great things are accomplished. I told you earlier, this structure lasted 500 years. And we're still talking about it 3,000 years later. When you and I properly recognize the value of a work for God and commit everything we have, then His messages have their greatest and most enduring impact. Now, this isn't a sneaky way on my part to get you to give. 
Now, you don't even have to give to me. That does, that's not going to be your reflection. You must be a giver, though. You must be a giver to a work that's true. If you're, a re- if you're reflecting the joy and love of Christ, if you're reflecting the joy and love of God, you will be an abundant giver. Your cup will runneth over. My guess is your closets are running over. My guess is your garage is running over. My guess is your trunk of your car is running over. Because you don't mind being an abundant giver to yourself. You know why? Because you love yourself. Nothing wrong with loving yourself. Nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. But you're doing it abundantly, aren't you? Why is God's church not flowing over? Why are the doors not bursting? I just want you to recognize that when we're called to be a part of something God is putting together, He wants our response to be joyful, enthusiastic, and overflowing. And listen, God makes very clear He doesn't want all of your time and money. The tithe makes it clear God doesn't want all of your time and money. He just wants enough to get the job done. He wants you to give it all. He wants you to want to give it all, I should say. He wants you to want to give it all, but he's promised to restrain you in that because it doesn't take everything we have. He didn't give you everything so you could give it back to him. That's the mistake the monks made. God didn't give you everything so you could give it away. He gave you everything so you could give some of it away. So that you could give enough of it away for His purposes. Time, talent, and treasure properly and joyfully given will bring God's purposes to fruition and it's not going to cause you unnecessary hurt. I promise you, the hurt you will feel will be the transition from being a keeper to a giver. That's what hurts. The pain you will feel is when God is sanctifying you to being someone that keeps something to himself to someone that gives it all away or gives up enough of it away. Back to the labor. The brass water basin used... I have to get my head back on track, so forgive me as we start slowly again. The brass water basin used for the washing of the hands and feet also speak to us about our Christian lives. Just as the laver was used by the priests to prepare them for their work for God, we need to be prepared every day for our heavenly work. And the washing that occurred at the laver symbolizes the washing that we receive by the Word of God. 
Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That's Ephesians 5. John 15, we're using Jesus' own words here. John 15, verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Listen, we must be prepared for our service for God. Being a willing participant is not the only thing. You must be willing and ready. And that's what God's Word does for us. You've heard me extol over and over the great need to learn God's Word. Well, now you see that the value of Scripture is at least, in part, in its ability to cleanse us for our mission for God. I want to point out something very important. The laver was placed after the altar. We've made that clear. Well, the altar deals with your salvation. The labor deals with your service. That's why there are two different locations. And they are set that way on purpose. First is the giving of the life. Next is the preparing of the life. The giving of the life happens at the altar. The preparation of the life happens at the laver. Listen, the laver in no way changes, alters, or enhances your salvation. That work happened at the first piece of furniture. The first thing, the brass altar, that's where salvation happened in a complete form. The laver is where you, are, you become prepared. For those, for making those that serve the Lord ready for their appointed task, and we're all in the business of serving God no matter what position in life we hold, we have the labor, the labor. The labor is the Word of God. We all must be prepared. You can't just go out and serve the Lord with no knowledge. Yesterday, I was in a training program. I volunteered for a certain thing to help the poor. Well, I can't just walk out and help the poor. I have to be trained. There's a specific thing I have to learn. I didn't just run out there, give me the poor and I'll tell you what you need. I don't know what they need. I need to be trained. That's what the word is for. When you go out and give your life to Christ in service, because that's what you're doing when you offer it on the altar, you need to be prepared. And the word is your place of preparation. When those priests and high priests went to do what they would do in the alt, in the tabernacle, before they could get anything started, they had to wash in the laver. The washing is the word. Another interesting thing about this piece of furniture that you'll find fascinating, I believe. The water in the laver and the brass mirrors were reflectors. The water would reflect up to the priest as he peeked over the edge. And as he washed, he could actually see where the dirt was. 
he could see with the reflection in the laver where the stains were, where the dirt was. That's what we get from God's Word. When we gaze at God's Word, we can see what hinders us in our service. It's not the same for everyone. Some of us are stronger in other areas, in areas that others are not. Some of us are weakest, and we need the Word of God to point those things out to us. Same thing with the priest. He saw that he had dirt on his left ear, while the other priest next to him had on his right cheek. They wouldn't have known that if they had not gazed into the laver. You don't know what you're missing until you read it in God's Word, till you're instructed in God's Word through the Holy Spirit's power. When we study the Bible, we encounter how God wants us to be, and therefore we can more effectively use what's found in His Word to cleanse us for service. We have to keep moving. Now, as we move westward through the tabernacle, we eventually come to an inner building called the tabernacle or the tabernacle proper. It gets a little confusing, but in this lesson, we'll call it the tabernacle proper. Now, this tabernacle proper, this inner building, this building that is inside the perimeter fence, was divided into two rooms. The first room was the holy place, and the second room was the holy of holies. Let's look at the first room. Before we enter into the holy place, the first room, we once again encounter a beautiful curtain. This curtain, as well as serving as an entrance. Now, the curtain that serves as the entrance to the holy place is nearly identical to the one that served as the entrance to the outer court. And that should tell you they speak of the same person. The same colors were used, blue, purple, red, and white. This tells you that this door also represents Christ. The entrance curtain to the outer court and the entrance curtain to the tabernacle proper were nearly the same. However, the entrance curtain to the outer court represents Christ as our salvation. The entrance curtain to the tabernacle proper represents Christ as our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's what this entrance is for. It's to represent Christ as our sanctification. Now, as such, it's a little bit different than that first entrance. Remember I said it's nearly identical? Well, there's one difference. The entrance to our sanctification, the entrance to the tabernacle proper, was a curtain that was held up by five pillars. The entrance to the outer court, four pillars. The entrance to the tabernacle proper, five pillars. Not only five pillars, but the curtain was held up by golden rings. Now, gold is the symbol of divinity, and the number five speaks of Christ. We enter into our sanctification not by our own efforts, but through the the accomplishment of divine grace. Divinity represented by the gold, grace represented by five. We are going through our sanctification through grace that comes from God. 
Now, once inside the tabernacle proper, we're in that first room, as we said, called the holy place. As we continue to face forward, on our left is the golden lampstand. Now, this was a very beautiful piece of furniture that was made, listen to this, by beating out a single piece of gold. Now, this method of production is even more amazing when you realize that this wasn't just some plain old candlestick, like one straight up candlestick. It was far more elaborate than that. You see, the lampstand had a single shaft that then branched off three branches to the left and three branches to the right for a total of seven. Believe me, all of this has meaning. We could stay here for nine hours. I mean, you already see we're running way over. I have to keep moving. Each branch was delicately directed with de decorated with knobs and flowers. Now, this wasn't just to hold candles, but rather it was meant to burn oil for light. So you see, at the tip of each branch was a bowl shaped like an almond blossom. And the priests were tasked to constantly maintain this lampstand by ensuring that the light never went out. And they did so by making sure there was always oil there and that the wicks were always in good working order. No smoking wicks allowed. Now, it's very important for you to realize that there were no windows in the holy place. The only light that was used by the priests for their work that went on in this room was supplied by this lamp. The lesson? We are not to live by the light of the world. In our service to God, we are only to use the light provided by Him. I'm sure you've guessed it by now. That light is Christ. When someone tries to tell me that they use Buddhist philosophy to try to teach Christ, I'm telling you, you're using the light of the world and not the light of Christ provided to you by God. Listen, if you want to live by Buddhist philosophy, go right ahead, but it has nothing to do with Christ. There is only one light that we are to do our service by the light provided by him. That lampstand represents Christ. God intended that lampstand to represent Christ. So we're still standing in the holy place facing west or basically the back of the tabernacle proper. On your left, as I said, is the golden lampstand. On your right is another plain yet incredibly beautiful piece of furniture. It's a very simple structure made again out of acacia wood, but this time overlaid with gold. This object is called the table of showbread. Now on top of the table of showbread, you would see items made of pure gold. Then these items were used by the priests for their duties while they were in the tabernacle proper. But what would strike you as perhaps unusual is that on top of this table are 12 loaves of bread. Yes, 12 loaves of bread. Now, the meaning of the presence of that bread or showbread, as the Bible calls it, is subject to a certain amount of debate. Let's look at the commandment of the Lord. Exodus 25, 23, Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood, 
two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an hand breadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. Now that's the basic description of the table. Let's skip down to verse 30. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. The showbread was to be placed on this table. But why? Well, that's the debate. Let's look back at the book of Leviticus to see if we can find the answer. Chapter 24, verse 5, And thou shalt take fine flour, and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two-tenth deal shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. That is a description of the two rows of six loaves of bread for a total of twelve. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. Listen to this. Being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. For it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. Now most have argued that the twelve loaves of bread that are set in two rows of six, as we see from verse 7, are actually representative of the bread sent down from heaven in the form of manna. And since it's well known that Jesus called himself the bread from heaven, the argument is that the show bread represents Christ. Well, let's look at it closely. First of all, the bread as we saw from Leviticus, was provided by the people. Verse 8, it says, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. Well, the people don't offer Christ to God as a memorial. Christ was given to us. Also look at the next verse, Aaron and his sons shall eat it in the holy place. The showbread was given by the people and then eaten by the priest to sustain them. The showbread represents our giving. In its most basic description, the showbread was given by the people and eaten by the priests. Our offerings are given by us for the maintenance of those that minister to us on God's behalf. If the bread was to represent Christ, then why was it given by the people and consumed by the priests? That doesn't fit the descriptions. It doesn't fit the person of Christ. The loaves were given by the people by God's pattern. God said, take it from the tribes. There were 12 loaves. That means everyone. There were 12 tribes, so each tribe had to contribute. That means everyone has to contribute. And it was used as a memorial, and then the priests would take it for the maintenance of their body. It's much more likely, in fact, most likely, 
that the showbread represents giving once again. We can see how highly God values your offerings. I'm not trying to get you to give to me. I'm trying to make you into a giver. God placed a memorial to your offerings in the holy place. If you don't like me talking about giving, then you don't like God talking about giving because I'm just repeating what he said. God chose to include a representation of your giving in this, his mighty work. Let's keep moving. So now we are facing westward. A few steps in front of us is the last piece of furniture in the holy place. Just as a review, on our left is the golden lampstand. On our right is the table of showbread. Now in front of us is a piece of furniture called the altar of incense. Like so many items in the tabernacle, it's made of acacia wood. Again, like the table of showbread, it is made of acacia wood, but it's overlaid with gold. On the altar of incense, the acacia wood overlaid with gold, you will very likely see and smell a very special blend of ingredients burning. This blend, God said, had to be exactly what he called for. And he called for it in Exodus chapter 30. God was so insistent that the ingredients be precise that the Bible actually tells us that two less than dedicated priests were struck dead immediately when they deviated from God's recipe. They had placed what the Bible calls strange fire on this altar. Leviticus 10.2, and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. I'm going to repeat what I said before. This tabernacle and everything in it is meant to pass on a pure message from God to his people. My fellow pastors, ministers, and priests, do not put strange fire on the altar. You teach what God told you to teach. Don't throw in your opinion. Don't throw in ecclesiastical mumbo-jumbo. You preach what God told you to preach. Everything else is strange fire. God will not be trifled with. Believe me, we could spend an hour just there. But obedience is not an option. What God commands we must do or face the consequences. The incense represents obedience to God in the blend. That's In the blend, it must be exactly what God said. But also, the incense takes on even greater significance when we realize that the burning incense actually represents our prayers and worship to God. The sweet psalmist says in Psalm 141, 2, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. But it goes even deeper. You're going to love this. You see, the incense that was burning on the altar, representing our prayers and worship, was sitting on an item made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. I already said that. But here's the significance, so listen carefully. I already mentioned to you that acacia wood typifies the humanity of Christ. 
This ultra-vacation wood was overlaid with gold. The Bible tells us that gold speaks of divinity. The altar of incense was both man and divine. Acacia wood and gold, man and divine. Well, there's only one person in all of human history that this can refer to. We know because acacia wood represents humanity. That's what it's there for. Well, the overlaid gold means it's a human that's also divine. Only Jesus Christ has that dual nature of humanity and divinity. It's been said that it's just as blasphemous to deny Christ's humanity as it was to deny his divinity. That was one of the greatest fights of the early church. There were those who were not willing to admit that Christ was actually a man and a God. They tried to say he's, he could have only been a God. I have to keep moving. Therefore, it is Christ, because it's the acacia wood overlaid with gold as the table of the altar of incense. Therefore, since it's acacia overlaid with gold, the altar of incense represents Christ, and on it is burning our prayers and praises to God. So therefore, we can be certain that this represents Christ presenting our prayers and praise and worship to God. It's also in Scripture that way. Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. God is our, Christ is our go-between. The word in the Latin is pontifex, which means a bridge builder. Our petitions, our prayers, our intercessions, our praises, our worship are presented to the Father through the Son. That's why the altar of incense exists. It's to tell you that your prayers, your worship, your praise is in the best of hands. It is in the hands of Christ himself. He has become our high priest. He presents our petitions to the Father. We know this because the altar of incense tells us that. There's something else. Once again, the location of the altar of incense is important. The altar of incense was placed at the back of the holy place. It was placed up against the entrance to the Holy of Holies, Exodus 36, and thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, which I will meet with thee. The veil that's spoken of was the door to the next room. The altar was placed, the altar of incense, the place where Christ is bearing up our prayers, our worship, our praises, was placed at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. Remember, we said it was at the Holy of Holies where God's presence was found. When the incense was burning, again representing our intercession and worship, the smoke would fill the room next to it where God was. Our prayers are being carried into God's presence by the altar of incense, which represents Christ. How can you not love him? He's advocating for you. He's your go-between. He's your high priest. 
He wants you to know that. Don't pray to, pray to Mary. Don't pray to St. Anthony to find your lost things. Pray to Christ. Pray to God and Christ will carry your prayers to the Father. He's your go-between. So much to cover. This brings us to the final two pieces of furniture we're going to discuss today. I know you're, I've kept you long. As we pass through the veil, the veil that serves as the entrance to the Holy of Holies, you would see in that room the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box. It measured about three and three-quarter feet long by two and a quarter feet wide and about two and a quarter feet tall. Again, all of this has meaning. We have to keep moving. Once again, the Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Therefore, you know it represents Christ. Now, remember, this was a box. Boxes contain things. Inside this acacia wood overlaid with gold box, there were three items, each of which also speaks of Christ. First of all, there was a pot of manna. You remember what manna was? It was God's provision for the people when they were in the desert. It was this manna supplied only by God. Mankind didn't make it. Mankind didn't grow it. Mankind didn't even know what it was. Manna is actually translating a Hebrew word that actually means, what is it? God provided that. It was the provision of God, and a pot of that manna was kept in the, the Ark of the Covenant. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. A pot of this bread from the Lord was placed in the Ark to show us that inside Christ is all we need to survive. He is our sustenance. He is our provision. He's our life. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The second item that was in the ark was Aaron's rod and budded. No time to go into that story, but basically Aaron's rod was a dead stick that blossomed. This too represents Christ in that we have new life through his resurrection, through death, life blossomed, life bloomed. That's what Aaron's rod speaks of. It speaks of new life through his resurrection. And then finally, and perhaps most convincingly, inside the ark were the two tablets of the law given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. But it's important to note that these two were the unbroken tablets. There was actually four tablets of the law. There were two that Moses broke and two that God made that were unbroken. Remember, Moses came down the first time with the two tablets of stone. He saw the people worshiping the calf. He got so mad, he he threw the tablets of stone on the ground and they broke. Moses went back up on the mountain and then God provided two more tablets with the law written on them. It's those two unbroken tablets that were placed into the Ark of the Covenant. These unbroken tablets of the law were placed in the Ark to speak loudly that in Christ the law remains unbroken. Moses 
in this case representing mankind, in mankind the law will always be broken, symbolized by the broken tablets. In Christ the law was not broken and therefore fulfilled and therefore they were placed in the ark, placed in Christ. The law was in him unbroken. Now this brings us to the last item we'll discuss. As I said just now, inside the ark was God's standard. The tablets of stone represented what God demands from mankind in his behavior. Remember we said, that's not something we can keep. We will break that law. Therefore, we need protection. We need covering. When we're exposed to God's standard, death results. Well, Christ provides that protection. By him we are covered on top of the mercy seat, serving as a barrier between God's standard and us is the mercy seat. It's the Hebrew word kapareth. Kapareth means a lid or a covering. You've heard of Yom Kippur. This word Kippur comes from Kapareth. Yom Kippur was the day of atonement when the high priest would present the sacrifice was, that was to cover the sins of the people. It was on this mercy seat, the covering, the protection, that the blood of the offering was sprinkled on the day of atonement. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our covering. He's shielding us from the wrath of God's standard. It's his blood that's been offered by himself as our high priest so that our sins, our failure in the face of God's standard is covered. As I do every time. I have to apologize. I, I don't know how I can get in this entire thing. I failed you and I apologize. We don't spend enough time on these things. And I know we've gone for an hour and 45 minutes already. We have to keep coming back to these items and going into greater detail. I commit myself to you to do that. But today my hope is is that you can see that your Father in heaven is beyond amazing. He's beyond incredible. There isn't a word that we can make up that could possibly describe how great our God is. He has established a foolproof plan for our redemption. We have fallen from His grace, and He of His own will has bent time and eternity to restore us. And the amazing part of all this is that he's chosen to share with us the details. And the details are found in his word. God's word, when properly studied, should make us all fall to our knees in absolute humiliation for ourselves and complete absolute adoration for him. The tabernacle in the wilderness all these thousands of years later has stood as a mighty beacon that when we turn to it, we learn of God's immeasurable love for us and our immeasurable need for Him. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. 
Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.